Welcome to the Vineyard Justice Network podcast. The Vineyard Justice Network exists to empower vineyard pastors and leaders to pursue and enact the justice of God's kingdom. VJN focuses on the interconnectivity of freeing slaves, ending poverty, and tending creation. In this podcast, we will be hearing from Steve Lowe, Executive Chaplain, and Michelle Smith, Parachaplain, both of Pacific Youth Correctional Ministry and Protestant Chaplaincy Ministry of Orange County. The title of this talk is Rethinking Prison Ministry Towards Restorative Justice. we would ask that you would put a singular burden and call on our life 
that might be transformative for them, that they might go and literally invest in an area that you're burdened for, Father. Michelle and I are privileged to be here today, Father. We thank you for the opportunity to come. We really appreciate what this conference is attempting to do and what you're doing at this church, Father, and with this group of churches. And we're blessed to be here today. So control us and fill us. We have a short period of time to get through our content. Uh, but we want to do that, Father, in a way that uh, brings you glory and makes you happy. We love you today in Jesus' name. Amen. So very quickly, I, my part is going to be talking about restorative justice. And then Michelle will be talking a little bit about how that plays out once a youth is released or what it's like on the streets. So bear with me for a few minutes because I need to give a context for where we're at today in 2014. And you do have some, some, some notes to work off of. When we look at criminal justice, uh, we see some trends that, that have impacted the way it's done. Uh, back in the day, it became the, the, the state of California versus Kathy. Uh, Kathy did an armed robbery, so it's the state of California versus Kathy. And in a sense, it had nothing to do with who she robbed. There's nothing to do with the victim of that crime. Uh, she, she doesn't do business with anybody that she's offended or hurt. It's just her against the state of California. There's something that's off with that, but that's the way our system functions. Then the system got very humanitarian, uh, I mean, humanism and positivistic uh, in, the, in the 50s and the 60s with, with, with the idea that with research, the scientific method, we can change people through the scientific method. We don't need God. We can take it from here. We're good. We can take it from here. And so part of the problem was is that you had a humanistic positivity approach that then really got in the way of allowing ministry to be full. It used to be fuller and richer back in the day. Then it, it, we suddenly were not, we were kind of tolerated but not needed, let's say. The Warren Court many years ago, Earl Warren, changed the focus of, of legal things in terms of being specific about procedures. All of a sudden it got to be, we're going to focus on doing the procedure right. We're not concerned about justice. We're not, we're not concerned about rehabilitation or things like that. We're concerned about the procedure itself. So all of a sudden the system got really microscopic on trying to, to do things the right way, but almost ignoring the big picture with that. Criminal justice system has been very dysfunctional. It doesn't work well with that. We see that today in America when we look at is Homeland Security really talking to the FBI, talking to the CIA, what kind of cooperation goes on, turf battles. So the system has always been dysfunctional, but it remains pretty dysfunctional. Uh, a lot of turf issues on that. But there's been a current plea for help. In other words, when the, when the government gets broke and what they're doing doesn't work, then there's a part of them that says, well, what works? And who can help us? And so at this point in time, uh, for the first time, and I've been at this, I, I've been in a, uh, working with juveniles for 44 years, and so at this point in time, the system is really saying to us, we need you, and we need what you have to offer us. We want you, we welcome you. So at this point in time, 2014, the doors are wide open for Christian ministry inside and outside. 
the doors are wide open for networking and collaboration. So it's never been the case in, in, in my lifetime. So I'm very excited. How, how new is this openness that you've experienced? I would say um, it started to crescendo with George W. Bush when he did his faith-based initiative out of the White House. Because the White House then made the decision, uh, you have all of these churches and organizations that are doing great things for um, drug and alcohol recovery, support groups, all of your uh, support groups that deal with people that are addicted to pornography and alcohol and drugs and gambling and stuff. And then you have, you know, you have a half a million churches in America. And so you have a half a million places where somebody can come and get some support systems in place. And the government really hadn't really said we're going to really focus on that. George W. Bush did that for the eight years he was president, and uh, President Obama has continued that at some level. So I would say probably, Kathy, it's, been, it's a fairly recent thing. But because of George W. Bush promoting it, having some federal funding for those organizations, even though they remain evangelical Christian in their approach, because it used to be if you're going to get federal funding, uh, you know, cut out the message. So, so there's a plea for help right now. So part of what's going on with me is, is the idea of, yeah, you know, we, we need to seize the moment. The door is open. The light is green. And so uh, we're, we're on a real mission to get the body of Christ to say, if, 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 if God has given us a good timetable to do something, let's do it. And then lastly, the emergence of the restorative model, which became out of prison fellowship in the 90s. So I'm going to say that it's 20 years old. And what the restorative justice model, and we'll talk about what it is, did is basically say to the criminal justice system, we have a better approach. We've got a biblical approach to deal with this. Uh, we, have, we have an alternative to the way that you think. Uh, Howard Zier wrote a book called Changing the Lens. And, and it was just the idea, let's just look at this thing differently. In a sense, think outside the box. We don't need to keep doing it the way that we've been doing it for, for the last 100 years or whatever. And so the restorative justice model has really, because of prison fellowship and because of justice fellowship, which, which is under prison fellowship, and Kathy, I don't know if you're familiar with the justice fellowship people in this area or not, but that's a separate entity of prison fellowship. And it's the justice fellowship group that has done the legislation, the restorative justice models, and uh, the heavy lifting when it comes to trying to get the system to do things at a more humane level. And you would enjoy uh, interacting with those people because you, you would find yourself right on, right on target with them. So the restorative justice model in your notes, we're just defining it. The restorative justice seeks to repair the harm caused by crime and misconduct. The affected parties do this best as they meet voluntarily to cooperatively find a resolution. When that happens, transformation of people, perspectives, and structures can follow. So when we speak of restorative approaches, do we have the encounter, reparative, or transformative conception in mind, or some combination of the three? So restorative justice says, we're going to work on repairing the harm. Kathy does her armed robbery versus State of California versus Kathy. She goes to prison. But has the harm been repaired? That victim hasn't been repaired. The fear that's in that victim hasn't been repaired. Uh, 
um, perhaps things that were taken from Kathy hasn't been replaced. She sits at home suffering everything she suffered and the person's off in prison and so what? In other words, the, the victim needs to, to be able to have some help with that as well. So the issue is we want to repair the harm. We'll talk about that a, a little more in a minute. We want to transform some people. Can we enter into a process that literally strengthens and builds and heals? Can we do a criminal justice process that has big ticket goals? Uh, the goal of wholeness underneath that. We want to have some societal shalom. Every time there's crime that goes on, it disrupts the very peace of the community. If you've got a, a high, if you've got crime going on in your neighborhood, you've got burglaries going on in your neighborhood and stuff, suddenly you realize, I don't feel comfortable. I'm not sure if I don't want to be out after dark. I don't want to go to the ATM after dark. I, I, I'm not sure if I want to get gasoline at night. I, I, in other words, societal shalom gets altered. The peace of the community gets altered. So restorative justice says, can we come along and do something to restore uh, the peace of the society? There needs to be reparation. Again, the issue is that repair becomes the goal. Not just punitive justice, but, but repair. And if you're going to get into a repair model, well, there's some work involved with that. I mean, how, how does that look? How does that work? Uh, but that has to be part of it. We want some transformation. Uh, Kathy does her armed robbery, goes to prison, comes out in two years. She's on parole. We have no way of knowing whether she's been transformed or not. I don't know what's going on in her that she's done, you know, time at the Chino Institute for Women. Uh, uh, but wouldn't it be good if there was something that was happening in her life from a restorative justice model that was literally transforming her? Wouldn't it be great if she'd come out changed or if the process changed her? And that's what we want to have. It's done through encounter. And this is a rough term because for those of you who are yeah, old enough to remember the 60s when we had all the encounter groups and all that kind of stuff, the concept of encounter got to be pretty negative because it got to seem, be seen as pretty liberal and humanistic. But encounter is really important um, because the, the encounter is getting the persons that are involved together somehow to be able to work through some things like that. We can, we can uh, imagine an encounter um, that fails to repair and do all of the things. We don't want that to happen. We want to have an encounter that does repair. So some examples uh, very quickly. Uh, you have Victim Offender Reconciliation Program. So in the state of California, it's called VORP, Victor Offender Reconciliation Program. And Kathy, it'd be good for you to just Google VORP and see what's being done at the state level and also what's being done locally. Uh, that movement got started probably 15 years ago at a pretty good level. So the victim offender, um, um, let's say that uh, Michelle uh, was raped, um, and uh, perhaps the offender's been arrested off in jail, prison. Uh, Michelle is traumatized, having trouble sleeping at night, having trouble trusting. Uh, the, the rape was traumatic. Uh, she hasn't recovered from that fully. So part of what could be taking place in the encounter is for Michelle to be in a prison setting in which she might be in a room with five rapists, facilitators, in which Michelle gets to talk about the trauma of the experience that she went through. 
And those five rapists have to sit there and listen to a real human being talk about the residual damage of that. She gets to have her piece with that. Now, none of the people in the room would be the one that actually raped her, but they would be rapists or child molesters, somebody uh, uh, doing offenses against people. They would also have an opportunity to say to Michelle, I'm really sorry that happened to you. And you kind of represent the person that I hurt and I've never really thought about the damage that I've done to them. And, and there can be some person-to-person -person interaction that might be reparative. We never know if the criminals are going to be sincere and legitimate and honest and all that kind of stuff. But at least Michelle had an opportunity to confront people and to share her heart on that. Second example that I had down was Widow Smith's house gets repainted. Prison Fellowship was really good about this. So Widow Smith has her house burglarized. It's traumatic for her. She lost some stuff. Uh, you know, her, her, her grandmother's silver that was handed down through the family, the, the silverware is stolen, and there's no way to get that back, and it's a big loss because that was great-grandma's silverware from Germany or whatever. And so Widow Smith is hurt. The guy gets arrested for the burglary. He's off in prison. That doesn't help Widow Smith at all. But Prison Fellowship was able to get businessmen that could sacrifice a weekend, have inmates that the prison trusted to be out for the day, and they literally would team up and in the course of a weekend would paint Widow Smith's house. So there's Widow Smith getting her house painted. Doesn't take up her grandma's silverware, but at the same time there's some repair going on. It also helps the inmates come out of the prison because they would really like to be able to do something that would help heal their heart. They've done some damage and they'd like to have some repair on that. So we watched Widow Smith's house get re uh, repainted, pretty cool. Victim involvement in court proceedings has gone on for a while now. Where the victims have an opportunity to confront the criminal, the perpetrator, to talk about the damage that's been done. Um, part of that is good, part of that's not really good. So I have mixed feelings about that. But I do like the fact that when it comes time for the court to make some sentencing decisions, that that victim literally gets to be a part of that and be able to express their opinion on that. Restitution is important. Um, uh, somebody has $1,000 worth of stuff stolen. Uh, they need to have that $1,000 worth of stuff replaced. Michelle was in a very serious car wreck a couple of weeks ago. The car was total, serious car wreck. Concussion, a bunch of things. We weren't sure she could be here today. We're glad that she's here today. But the car is total. Bodies banged up, um, neck hurts. Um, the the restitution needs to be the the reparation needs to be that she gets whatever she needs to get to be as whole as possible. We're expecting the insurance company to do that. Okay, we're expecting the insurance company to do that. But when it comes to criminal justice things, it doesn't quite work that clean. So in, in a sense, with restitution and reparation. We're trying to get the situation where the system says to the victim of the crime, we want to come alongside you and we want to see about restitution and make restitution part of the terms of probation, uh, those kind of things where uh, if, I, if I sold $1,000 from you, then I'm going to be paying you back $100 a month until that $1,000 is paid off. And that's part of my terms of probation. And if I don't satisfy that, I go back to jail or back to prison. Uh, in Orange County probation, Michelle and I are both with Orange County Probation and Social Services, and I've been their chaplain since 81. So the issue for those of you, first-time offenders, instead of coming into juvenile hall, they will do a week 
weekend work program. They work 10 hours on a Saturday, 10 hours on a Sunday. Uh, they're going to go out and clean flood control ditches, hoe weeds along the creek, pick up trash. In other words, they've not doing graffiti and messing things up. Well, guess what? You're now going to spend a couple of days, uh, and maybe more than a couple of days, giving back to the community. We're going to force you to make a contribution to the community. So every year, the probationers in Orange County alone, both at the juvenile level and the adult level, do a lot of things that are good for Orange County. Every citizen doesn't know that. But that's part of this thing of, you know, you're going to make things better. We're going to ask you to make things better. Offender and family restorations. Um, we had a situation in uh, Los Angeles where a prison fellowship bought a home because when women uh, were having babies and going to prison, then they were separated from their babies. And oftentimes the baby went into foster care and there was not a reconciliation when that woman came out of prison. So they got a home to be able to house those babies and then when mom come out of, of jail or prison could be reconciled to their very own child. It was just a neat concept. South Central LA with the uh, AME church there. I re really liked that concept. And then the last thing uh, before I turn things over to Michelle would be victim and family restoration. So it fit Calvary Chapel, it was Mason. Uh, on Friday nights, Glenn Sutton, whose son was in state prison as a heroin addict, and felt lonely and awkward with that, embarrassed by that, then started a Friday night group at Big Calvary just for the families of inmates. In other words, where can a family of inmates, a family member of inmates, come and have any kind of nurturing support. In the church community, we're embarrassed to say, my husband's in jail or my son's in jail, uh, or they're having this problem or that problem. There's just that embarrassment that goes on with that. And so what ended up happening is this little fledgling Friday night thing suddenly just really blew wide open. It become one of the largest studies uh, at Big Calvary back in the 90s, uh, because there were so many people that had friends and loved ones and relatives locked up and nobody to share that with. So one of the things that we're asking churches to do is to realize that if you've got, I don't know how many people attend this church, for example, but if everybody that attended this church stood up that had a family member that was in juvenile hall jail or prison, and that could be a spouse or a brother, sister, son or daughter, you would find a lot of people standing. And the issue would be, where can they go to get any kind of support, help, encouragement? They're all worried when that person comes back, how are they going to act? What am I supposed to do? How much do I trust them? Oh, we don't know what to do. We have nobody to talk to about that. So I would encourage every church to be thinking about what they could be doing to kind of uh, make that the case. I'm going to turn things over to Michelle, and then we'll have a time for some questions and answers at the end. So out of curiosity, who, raise your hand if you had a father when you were growing up in your youth and teenage years. Yeah. So 100% of us did. Heartbreaking statistic is at least, I think it's more, but about 85% of the population of the youth and the neighborhoods and the gangs and also the, the gangs and the youth in the incarceration, the, the juvenile halls, the jails, 85% are fatherless right now. 
Let that sink in for a second. The, the father figure that's supposed to be the leader of the home, the one that protects them, provides, the one that, especially for the young men, for the young women and the young men, the kids growing up, shows them their identity. It shows them that I'm proud of you, you know. Um, that stability is just not there. And oftentimes that, you know, the 15 percentage that do have fathers, some of them are the gang leaders, or some of them are, you know, some of them are, do have good fathers, but the majority we're seeing do not. So we're dealing with a fatherless society, and we get to point them to the Father, the Heavenly Father, and let them know that they might be orphans, or they might have um, not as much stability here on Earth, but there is a, a, a loving Heavenly Father that wants to adopt them, an eternal adoption, right? Not an adoption. Some of these kids have been through you know, foster care, they've been to group homes, they've eight group homes, right? They run, they've been to, they've been adopted, been unadopted, disowned. And so when they, even when they hear that God wants to adopt them as their, as his child, they, you know, the word adoption sometimes for them means, oh, it's temporary. Once they find out who I really am, then they're going to disown me. And, but it's, so we can introduce them to the Heavenly Father who doesn't disown. Amen to that, right? So as he was talking about inside the facilities, the juvenile halls, we go to four different juvenile hall facilities, and we also go to Orangewood um, Children and Family Center. So in these, so inside is one world, right? The kids actually go to school. They have very good high schools. They're sobered up. They have three meals a day in juvenile halls. They kind of spoil them. They have snacks and cookies, and you know they get that in between the three meals usually too. So they're usually welfare. They come in tweaked out from drugs and high and um, abused and it, um, bruised from fights and you name it, bulletins, whatever. So they come into juvenile hall looking pretty bad. Usually, and I'd say kind of fatten up while they're not fatten up, but you know they kind of get their their skin color back when they're eating. They're eating three meals a day and they're sobered up. They're going to school and they really do get strength. They get strengthened by the word go to Bible says church services, they get filled up with the word, and and then, oh, their release date, they can't wait to get out, and then they go back, a lot of them, they go back to that same gang street, they go back to the same uh, dysfunctional family, where they'd rather actually be on the streets, homeless, than be in their house, because there's maybe 10, 12 people living in the house, and they don't even know who some of the people coming in and out of, using um, gangs, drug, drugs, alcohol, abuse, uh, not all the homes. But the majority that we've seen are dealing with this. And so the real jumble is when they get out, right? Because they could have jail Jesus faith. You know, they can, while they're in there, you know, they really do. A lot of them, they get wisdom, they get God's truth. And then when they get out, a lot of times just to survive. Because they're on that street. They get back into, well, you know, or maybe... Okay, well, I know of Jesus, I know Jesus, but when I get out, who's going to keep walking with me? And that's where we also come in. We don't just stay with them in the, in, the, in the walls. We also, when they go out in the community, that's when the really real world hits. And, okay, well, now I'm a Christian now. Here's my, here's my homies, here's my gang members that are knocking on my door. Let's go party, you're out, homie, let's, let's, let's go. Or... What are you talking about? This Jesus stuff. Oh, here's a razor, shave your head again. Here's, you know how to, you know, they get back in their gang clothes the next day. And um, I know a youth that I've known, known him since he was 12, 13 years old in juvenile hall, a kid, right? And now I know him at 20 years old, 
And throughout those juvenile hall years, he always came to Bible studies, church services, and when he got released, visited them in county, got to know their family, in and out of county jail, um, never knew the biological father. I can see the effects of that. Um, and just being able to follow this youth and now a young adult into their life, and, and there are youth, there are kids. You know, God's put them in our life for a reason. And just seeing the struggles as I follow this young man now, and, and these young women that get out, follow their life, and you see what's missing, you see the gaps, you see that, you know, our, our biggest prayer is for mentors when they get out in the communities. And we try to help them plug them into churches, local churches, try to help them find mentors. Because if they don't have a dad, I've had 19-year-old, Boys say, I've never had a dad just to throw a ball with or to go fishing with. Or the young girls say, I never, my mom never even taught me how to do makeup or brush my hair. Or an 18-year-old I just counseled last night, biblically counseled, met with last night, doesn't know how to tell time on a clock. 18 years old, doesn't know how to tell time on a clock. And I was like, okay, well, we're going to work on that. <laughs> but when they get out in the communities, they're already faced, as he was addressing, they, the families also get outcasted with them. They feel outcasted. How hard is it for us as adults to walk into church by ourselves sometimes? It's not always the easiest thing, especially if you're new to an area or new to a... But for these teenagers, for these young adults, they're getting out of juvenile hall to say, oh yeah, you know, there's a church down the street, go ahead, go to that. This doesn't usually happen, Right? Because not only are they facing, they're going there by themselves, but guess what they're also facing? As they walk through the doors, do you think they're going to feel, always feel accepted or feel welcomed or feel... Now, churches all, I encourage them. Many churches are friendly, you know? They want you to come. So we try, I know I try to, um, I know Chaplain Rick does it, Steve and I, and Sherry, we try to go to church with him if we can. You know, I try to take the young girls on, on any given day. I don't have my own kids. I don't know if you guys do, but I feel like I do. Because on any given day, I get texts, I get calls, Facebook messages, you name it. Can you pray for this one? This one girl this week is um, is testing and training for a hair salon. This is her passion. She loves to do this. So, you know, every day I'm getting, please pray for me. That I'll pass this test that I can get this job. And it's hard, and I'm so proud of her because she's come a long way in the last several years. And just to follow along in life with her. And so that's what... We try to help. We try to be that family support that many times they don't have. A cool opportunity through the 10 years I've been with Pacific Youth, I've noticed a lot of the youth are involved in gangs, even the girls that have either association or they're involved in gangs. And so three years ago, five years ago, a program was started um, from a volunteer from Pacific Youth called Lizer Saving Gang Intervention. Three years ago, I've been doing it. And we go out into the gang-populated areas in Santa Ana. A lot of youth are from Anaheim also, um, testing all different areas. But they come and they post up. They get out on the streets and they're doing their gang activity, doing the drug selling, doing the violence. And we go out as a group. And we, you know what God's word says in Deuteronomy that says every step you take will be what? Every place your foot steps will be yours. So we claim that land back that... The neighborhoods that have a stronghold of gang activity, we're talking decades. Like nothing good, like Jesus from Nazareth, nothing good comes from Nazareth. You mention a street name and everyone's like, oh, I know that street. 
<laughs> nothing good happens there. Well, God led us to the lead a home Bible study on one of the most notorious, one of the biggest gang-infested areas in Santa Ana. And guess what? It wasn't even our idea. It was the family's idea. We were walking down the street after two years of getting to know, building a trust with this one specific family. And the dad's been in and out of the gang for many years. One of them actually one of the shock callers, the big guy, is out there. And they had three kids. And we would stop by their house. We'd follow up, right? Discipleship is following up, right? The hard part, the footwork. <laughs> so we would knock on their door. Hey, how you doing? And it'd be Saturday nights. We'd go out there. After a year of doing that, and three, four times a month, guess what the mom said? We said, dude, does your family go to church anywhere? They're like, oh, no, we don't feel comfortable walking to church. People judge us. They know my, they know my boyfriend, you know. I know it's all tatted up everywhere. He's a, he's a big teddy bear at heart, you know. And it, but they're scared of him. And she says, but guess what? If you bring church to us, we will open up our apartment to you if you come every week on Wednesday, every Wednesday night. And we said, okay, sure. I mean, how can you say no to that, right? So I asked my team leader, hey, Dan, let's pray about it. Let's do this, you know. I think that night we said, we're going to do this. But we need you guys to be here every Wednesday night, too. We don't want to show up at your house and you're like, oh, pardon me. So for a straight year, every Wednesday night, we would hold, that whole family would be there. And all the gang members on the street would come out, too. We'd have barbecues and they would... Gang members would come out, got each member of the family a, a Bible with their name on it, and guess what? We've seen their lives transformed. And just what it took was bringing, you know, when we carry God's light in us, we bring light into the darkness, right? Amen? In our workplaces, and the juvenile halls, down these dark, dark streets. One of our first weeks, there was a drive-by, and there was police and helicopters and um, uh, shotguns out, and we're looking out the glass window like, Gosh, this is Santa Ana. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a typical home Bible study. That? What? How did you manage your feelings in that moment? Well, I got as far away from the glass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, they're used to it though. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's just another day. But for me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I almost needed a change of pants. You know, I was like, I was scared. I'm not going to lie, I was scared. But throughout, you know, it's too much information. Um, you came back the following week. Oh yeah, we came back the following week and the following Saturday night too. And you know, God's wherever God calls you, He really does protect. We, I was reading Psalm 91. I have almost have it memorized because it's God's protection. And we saw, you know, even the gang members outside, they would stand guard. They respected us. They would stand guard in the driveway and protect us at the Bible study. <laughs> they didn't even know us, but they respected what we were doing on that street. And so that's another way that God. The things, you know, kind of like a neighborhood, um, take initiative, take uh, whatever communities, neighborhoods God's given us where we're at, to come together, just walk the neighborhood, just see what's, where the need, where there's a need, try to fill it. And as we walk the neighborhoods, we really, you know, the kingdom's about building relationships, right? Jesus was very relational. And so we try to help them, a lot of the kids are dropouts at high school, so we try to help them when they get released. Um, to make sure they know what resources they have to get back into school, to also, um, I like to encourage them to go on to mission trips. Find out what your passion is. What do you love to do? Oh, you love to play sports? Get involved with sports. Because we all know that uh, you have no time. You're bored all day. You're doing nothing. What's going to happen? 
we can get in trouble, we can get in mischief. And so when these kids have jobs, when they're going to school, they're pooped out at the end of the night. They go to bed. <laughs> they don't go out and get high and party and shoot up. And, and um, so, so another thing is we're, we're praying about for our community is when these, these teens have felonies, felony records, when they get out most of the time out of juvenile hall, and so who's going to hire a felon? Not many people, so our prayer right now, if you can keep that in prayer too, is we're, we're working now, um, Homeboy Industries just created a program called Project Kinship. It just started April 2014, so we can provide um, more resources, more people willing to work with this population to get the life skills training. And we try to help that on our own, and when they get out, individually and also as volunteers, um, kind of get the, like you said, make the churches and the communities aware that these youth and young adults and families are in need and they're coming into your churches. You know, welcome them, make sure they feel welcome, whether they're tatted up or not, you know, that they can know that they're coming in and that God judges our hearts and our outward appearance. And I was trying to encourage them with that. Do you know how many churches are already, I know you said it just started, but how many churches are already signing up? Is Calvary already on board with this we, initiative? We have a church resource directory that we give our kids at church. Uh, and we've developed about 50 churches. In this Anaheim, Santa Ana area. That mm -hmm. Yeah, all of Orange County. Yeah, even some South County and some. And these are 50 churches that we have a relationship with, and uh, they know what we're doing, and they're willing to receive our kids. Willing to receive your kids and willing to become like these job mentors, like the, this project kinship. Yeah, that's that's something that's happening in Orange County that I'm actually applied for the course. It's starting soon. I don't know if I'm going to get accepted, but it is it is focused on this population. Yeah. And working towards how can we um, partner with the community, with with schools, with the um, police force, with families, churches, faith-based and non-faith-based to help give them a second chance. And, um, just want to also share that. You know, the Lord throughout the few years has opened up different platforms for us to share, not just at churches, but I know for me, business meetings, quantum clubs, anywhere where there's community, yeah. whether it's faith-based or yeah. not, yeah. how can we how can we help these youth? You know, how can we um, give them a second chance? And also, I've been speaking at public schools the last two years, especially in Santa Ana, Santa Ana High School, Guadalinas. I'm speaking at Cesar Chavez tomorrow, which is a continuation school. There's an awesome biology Christian teacher who opens up her classroom at lunchtime. You get, you get food, <laughs> and teenagers come in, and we get their 40 to 50 teenagers to sit, and you get to preach the gospel freely, and they can share my testimony tomorrow and pray for them. And, and these youth, um, at least tomorrow at that school, uh, majority are on probation, occupation, juvenile hall youth population. And so that's another opportunity to reach the schools, middle schools, high schools, to kind of reach them at a certain age. So we, we do a lot of that. We do a lot of um, continuation of care and mentoring when they get out. We try to keep those relationships. Like Steve said, as long as they'll hang in. And it is saddling up. It's definitely not a quarter horse. It's more of a bronco. <laughs> more of like a bull ride. It truly is. But these youth are so precious. And I can tell you what, I, I've had several youth. A girl last night that I was um, meeting with, she said, I only trust two people in this world, my mom and you. Sometimes I don't even trust my mom. So I, I, I know that's God. So it's all about giving them support, love, second chance, because we're all broken, and just to point them to the healer.
Any, any questions? We're, we're, it's 11.45 and we're going to be timely with that, but uh, anything that might be on your, on your minds? Are you familiar with the Safe Families? I've heard of it. I'm not sure. It just reminded me of it when you said that that fellowship in South Central LA that was um, taking in the babies. Yes. Yeah. The Safe Families is a voluntary program of basically foster care but not mandated and not state run and it's run through churches and it might be that if you um, and I think if you look them up if you want their website it's going to say safe dash families because there was two safe families it's the one that what they do is they the church has to sign up as a whole and they take in kids for temporary it can be two months it could be two years Mom has to go through rehab or whatever, oh, mm-hmm. and but they make it a, a church, program? a church program, so mm-hmm. that if I'm willing to take in the baby, but I don't have the finances yes. to handle an extra child, mm-hmm. Kathy says I'll give you a hundred dollars a month, and she donates a stroller, mm-hmm. and she says um, I'll pick up your kids from school so you can stay home with the baby. So it's almost so it's like a foster care. It's like a voluntary foster yeah. care. Oh, okay, so it's not like a legal document. No, no, no. So it's the so kind of thing where mom knows what's going to happen. Mom immediately goes and Safe Families takes care of it before the system okay. steps in. So you're and not says, a legal guardian, though. But she the signs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. She kind of signs over but the like point that. is, then she doesn't have to jump through all those hoops to get her baby you back. Oh, wow. Okay, I'll definitely So it's just that. something to think about. Yeah. Safe families. Any other questions or comments? Anything else we can say to you? I'd just love to hear a little bit more because this is, um, you know, so my, I'm, I'm in Philadelphia. And so, so Cheryl's the one that's here at Vineyard. Uh-huh. Um, but this would be, like, so radical. Um, for the church that I that I'm in, so walk me through like if it, like if you could say like five steps. So I I'm coming home and I talk to uh, I, I I talk to some of the leaders and there's so, there's so a group of people who say you know what like we are interested in this. Uh, I guess I first have to find the equivalent. First first right? question first question would be to Pastor Smith. Do we have any kind of a prison bench? So I can answer that question. You can ask that question. Yeah, he, no. might say, he might say, well, I think Joe goes into jail on Tuesday nights or something. Sometimes that's the only prison ministry the church has. But maybe they do have a church team that goes into prison. Then they probably have a church team leader. And I want, I want to talk to that church team leader. Because that's somebody that's already sensitized to the needs on that. So let's say that they do have a church team that's going into uh, Philadelphia's jail. Uh, then it would be a matter of finding out who that team leader is and connecting. Second thing would be doing an environmental assessment to say within a 20 mile radius of our church, what are the juvenile halls and the jails and the prisons? And in finding out, this is what I do for my Wheaton College students. I make them do an environmental assessment so that they can determine what institutions are within driving distance of the church. And then they call those institutions to find out what's available. So at least they've done an environmental assessment to say, uh, this, this is the arena that we could function in. Then the second thing would be, if they do have any kind of institution ministry, how can that be strengthened? 
we can really help with that. If they have an existing ministry and they would like some additional training or strengthening, we, we, would, we would go there and do that. If they don't have anything at all, uh, then I would encourage them uh, to, to get all the, the CMC brochure that you've got and, uh, and Karen Swanson at uh, the Institute of Prison Ministries at the Graham Center and just say, let's talk about starting stuff because there's books on how to get things started and, and, uh, and that as well. You're not going to get into some sophisticated aftercare processes until you do that very foundational process at the beginning. Now, let's say this, this for example, that your church has a really thriving correctional ministry. Uh, they're ready to move to the second phase. Then it would be a matter of finding out who within that group is really willing to do the legwork to say, what are we going to be doing for aftercare, reentry, uh, family support systems, those kind of things. Who, who would like to think about that, do some strategic planning on that, and, uh, and, 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 get, and get the church organized? So you got Calvary Church in Tustin, pretty white bread church, but they made a decision several years ago they were going to get really focused on, on this issue. So we had our big kickoff last year at that church. Uh, probably had 50 people that were interested in the, the message, let's say. We had people from Prison Fellowship and us and other uh, ministries, uh, the adult ministry here in Orange County Cleaners. But out of that group, now we have a group of people, we have people in that church themselves that are taking on the responsibility of some leadership. Uh, they're willing to do the, the, the legwork to organize and plan and have meetings and do things like that. And then we'll do any skill building for that. In other words, the groups like Christian Fellowship and Pacific Youth and other places, we love to, if we get some interested people, we will go and skill build them the best that we can because that's that's how you reproduce a ministry, that's how it grows. So those would be the starting things. And then I'll send you, Kathy, what I'll do with you is, I've got your email address, so I will introduce you to Karen at the Billy Graham Center. And uh, maybe a few other people as well, and then I'll send you some of my writings. So we'll, we'll start a relationship. We're starting a relationship today that will have legs to it. And then, uh, yeah. So even in your story, Michelle, what you're saying, because I'm if I'm hearing you correctly, sorry. like step step one is getting the train to even go into a detention center first, and that has to be established before you can do anything with regards to you coming out. Not, and then possibly participate in the life of your church. Because there's people that have not come into the facility. But the advantage to I guess that's what I'm wondering, because how, how much is that, like step one, step two, versus these are two ways of engaging with... There's two ways to engage, but I'm going to say this, the, the best way is having somebody that has institutional experience, because they can follow some... Then they understand, what, what they was follow, your life like? And they can, uh, Michelle yeah. will see people on the streets that she's ministered to in juvenile hall. Yeah. There's an advantage to that. Maybe that former life can help the youth when they get out that they're not, you know, mm -hmm. 
they're just because of their background, they can't be cleared, but yeah. they can still help mentor in the community yeah. do things. Yeah. So it's different. Yeah. Areas and pockets that people can help out. Yeah, that's really helpful steps. Just the end now, it's just that it's just some of the stuff that you're doing and there's some overlap with this. I love that idea of 58. We talked about being a restorer of homes and cities, and that's really what it is. You're restoring, even you start with that one youth, and then that one youth that, you know, Steve counseled, or I counseled, or Sherry Rigger, talking to Steve Madden. And if, if their life is transformed, they go back to their family of eight people, that they're a catalyst now to their family, maybe, through Christ through that, or through, a lot of times they're like the parents, the family. They're mm -hmm. picking up their mom who's drunk at a party, and their dad's ODing on the floor, passed out, and they're the ones that are taking care of the younger siblings. And so, like, if they get changed, and they're going to church and taking their mom, dad, siblings to church, and that whole street is changed, and it's just such a, a domino effect about one youth is such a ripple. Or we have, a, or we have a Tim Alexander who's back yeah. as a volunteer after being yeah. locked up eight times. Wow. He's a great volunteer. He's a great guy, too. He's a great teddy You really, not tall as me. Oh, 30, 35 along in there, but he... Anything else? Are, are we okay? We're good. We're good. Okay. Do you work with um, things like kids' work? A little bit with kids' work. Uh, Larry Acosta started that back in the yes. day with the Hispanic Ministry Center. Larry is one of my favorite brothers in Christ. Yeah, I can understand I adore that. Larry. I, I brag on him everywhere I go. When I go raise money, I brag on Larry. <laughs> <laughs> Churches in the community on Sundays actually. Kid works in Santa Ana. There's a church that meets Pastor John Cabrillo. Yeah, has a church in that building. So a lot of the yeah the youth and families that know of kids work sometimes they go to that. Hmm. Open up the different Bible studies. I know there's people that are gay and other team, but some of them work at kids work so in the community. Yeah, I know they do a lot of good lot of good things. What's close to the work? Father, thank you for this stewardship of time. And if there's something you want us to do, all of us, impress it upon us, Father. Give us the strength and the courage and the energy to, to go do that. Let us be a catalyst to get something started that's not started. Or let us be somebody that might help strengthen something that is already started, Father. Again, give Kathy a blessing for all of the leadership of this. And the rest of the people at this church that had to do a lot of work as well. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.